0: Thank you. Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to have you here with me. The last episode of The Baton featured the film Images, which made its U.S. debut the week of December 18, 1972. That same week, John Williams' name showed up on a decidedly different movie called Pete and Tilly, and that's the movie we're discussing today. Though Images and Pete and Tilly were released to the general American public the same week, their scoring sessions were very far apart on the calendar. Williams conducted the score to Images in February 1972 so the film could make its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May. The work on Pete and Tilly came after Williams signed off on the score to The Poseidon Adventure, which actually made its debut the week before. Sounds a bit confusing? Yes, probably. But just understand that Pete and Tilly was the third score John Williams wrote in 1972. And it's one of the shortest scores he had written up to that point. At barely 15 minutes playing time in the film, it is just enough to remain noticed in the film, but only if you're a John Williams fan paying attention to all the music moments. Not counting the credits at the beginning of the movie, there's only a couple of music cues that last more than a minute. The rest serve as quiet scene transitions. The film marks the first collaboration for John Williams with director Martin Ritt, whose films carry important social messages. Of the movies he directed before Pete and Tilly, probably his most popular ones are Paris Blues, The Long Hot Summer, and The Great White Hope. Just two months earlier, Sounder was released to great success, showcasing a story of a struggling black family of sharecroppers during the Great Depression. Ritt never had an association with just one composer in his career. Alex North, Franz Waxman, Elmer Bernstein, and even Duke Ellington wrote music for his films. I'm not sure why none of those composers worked with Ritt for Pete and Tilly, but perhaps the fact that Universal Pictures produced the film had something to do with it. John Williams has maintained a workspace on the Universal lot since his days as a contract employee for Review Studios, and likely was looking for more work in the fall of 1972. He might have heard of Pete and Tilly, met the director, watched the movie, and agreed to write the score. And as I said before, there isn't much score there, so his assignment was not too arduous. And after the work he put in scoring images earlier that year, and just wrapping up the modest but still complex score for The Poseidon Adventure, it's likely Williams was looking for a quieter film. And I bet he wanted to show his diversity as a composer, something that helps sell his talents to directors looking for composers. So Williams was able to sit at his piano and work out what many Williams fans call a marvelous main theme. Given the bombastic music we've heard from John Williams in the three movies before this, and in a way I would include Fiddler on the Roof as well, the soft piano theme was very welcome. It might have been a welcome respite for Williams as well. I knew nothing about the plot to Pete and Tilly before I popped in the DVD to watch it for this episode. I'm going to give some crucial plot points in this episode, as I always do, so beware. Having Walter Matthau and Carol Burnett as the leads in the film made me think there would be some high comedy, but there isn't. Burnett's work here is very similar to what Mary Tyler Moore would do eight years later in Ordinary People. In her film debut, Burnett took on a role that was very opposite what she was doing every week on her self-named TV variety show. Burnett plays Tilly, a straight-laced woman who is set up to meet Pete, a seemingly boring man who breaks the tension with corny dad jokes. Over time, the two don't really fall in love as much as realize there isn't much else out there. So they get married and raise a child. As I said, the film isn't much of a comedy, but it makes an even more dramatic turn in the last 15 minutes when their child dies. Coupled with Pete's constant infidelity, Tilly finds her life unraveling at film's end. Before we meet either of these characters, Williams sets the scene in the opening credits, which appear over a panoramic shot of San Francisco. Again, the theme as it plays on the piano is good. I'm stopping short of calling it great because the melody didn't lodge itself in my brain immediately, as is so many of the themes Williams wrote for the movies before this. It seems to just exist, And in the case of this film, that's just fine. There's no score in the movie while Pete and Tilly are dancing around a courtship. There's some music playing in restaurants, but that music doesn't seem to belong to Williams. The first time we hear Williams' music is after they make love for the first time. I didn't sense any love between the two of them, which is probably why Williams put the theme in here, to let us think there's romance in the air. After the two get married and take their honeymoon, the main theme takes on a cheerful tone as the newlyweds seem happy, especially as we cut to a few months later when Tilly is seen with a very pregnant belly. The strings are strong here as they play the theme, and this is the last time we'll pretty much feel happy in this movie. About 20 film minutes after they are married, Pete and Tilly get the news that their nine-year-old son is dying. It seems like there is cancer involved, but even in 1972, the C word might have been a bit too shocking for the censors. The scene in which the doctor comes to the house to deliver the sad news does not feature music, and that was an interesting choice. Typically, a major scene like this would get musical accompaniment to highlight the scene. But Burnett and Matthau do so well in their performances that music isn't needed to supplement the scene. If there had been music in the scene, I might be talking to you about how obtrusive the string section is or the piano performance. So this just shows that sometimes it's not always cut and dry about whether music is right for a scene or not. The only main piece of comedy in the movie comes when Tilly gets into a fight with her friend, a socialite named Gertrude that's played by Geraldine Page. The running joke about Gertrude is that no one knows her real age, not even her husband. Tilly tries to trick Gertrude into giving her age when signing up for a charity event, and in her anger, Gertrude hits Tilly in the head with her purse in a park. The two get into a fight that escalates into both getting soaking wet with a hose. This seemed like the perfect opportunity for Williams to write something a bit slapstick without getting too corny. Based on the fact that the only official soundtrack release of this score does not include music for this scene, it seems like there was never a plan to write music for the cat fight. I had never seen the movie, but I had known about this infamous fight scene for a few years after reading a biography about Paige's life. The scene became so famous that it probably got Paige that Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. She's not in the movie for more than 10 minutes, I think, so it had to be this scene that had people talking. Tilly checks into a mental institution after that fight, and when she is released, she and Pete finally talk after a brief separation period. It seems like there will be some reconciliation as Pete finally grieves for his dead son. The music returns, quietly at first, then gets hopeful again as we close out the film with the cast credits. It's just 35 seconds or so of music in the film, but at least we feel a bit better when it fades to black. The soundtrack release of this film includes about three minutes of extra music in the track called End Title, which suggests there was supposed to be music playing during Pete and Tilly's reconciliation scene. But that music was cut and doesn't start until the final ten seconds of the actual film. I think this was a good choice to cut the music because there's a very emotional moment that might have been too sappy with the main thing playing underneath. So, Pete and Tilly was a modest hit in theaters, actually making more money on opening weekend than images. That's not surprising since the advertising for images was virtually non-existent with a plot that was very hard to describe, while Pete and Tilly was being branded as Carol Burnett's film debut. An easier sell. Burnett and Matthau were nominated for the Golden Globe for performances in a comedy, which didn't make sense, and neither won. As for Williams, the score got basically no attention at the time of the film's debut. It wasn't until a couple of years later that some music got a commercial release, thanks to a song called Love's The Only Game In Town. It featured the main theme as the melody, with lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. At first, Walter Matthau recorded a song-speak version of it, then Carol Burnett put her spin on it. This is the Carol Burnett version of that song.
1: Some sad times, no bed of roses But we'd be fools to turn it down When love's the only game in town when some, lose some Just muddle through some That falls and grows circus has to have a clown and love's the only game in town. Seems we got lucky
0: Martin Ritt and John Williams would work together twice more, collaborating for Conrack just two years later, and then again for Stanley and Iris in 1990. Two films that Ritt made, Norma Ray and Cross Creek, are very good films, and I wonder how John Williams would have put his fingerprints on it. Unfortunately, he was very busy when both films came around, so he missed out on those opportunities. So, that wraps it up for John Williams' scores released in 1972. But, if you have listened to the episodes for Images and the Poseidon Adventure, you'll notice that there was an eight-month gap of seemingly no work for John Williams in that year. It turns out, he was very busy in the spring and early summer of 1972 working with the Sherman brothers, Richard and Robert, on the song score for the adaptation of the Mark Twain novel Tom Sawyer. After conducting the song recordings that would be played on set during filming that summer, Williams was free to take on the work for The Poseidon Adventure and Pete and Tilly. Once those two scores were locked in, Williams went back to Tom Sawyer to compose some underscore and beef up the orchestra performances of the songs. And that will kick off work on the five film scores he would write in 1973. I appreciate you joining me on today's episode. As always, I invite you to write in with comments about the scores discussed so far, or just tell me what could be better about the show. I still have about 80 more episodes to go, so there's plenty of time to implement any changes you think the show might need. Send me an email to jeffswim at AOL.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, the baton is down.